Good morning, Grace family. It's always just such a pleasure to, to be with all of you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Junior Jamrianvid. I'm a member here at Grace. Occasionally I get asked to preach, and I get this wonderful privilege today. So please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for life. We thank you for everything that you've provided for us, and it is by your hand. May we learn to steward our resources well, care for the needs of others, and know that eternity is real. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite stories growing up is uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Did you know it has been adapted to film 135 times? You know, I've watched several versions of it, and I've enjoyed most of the ones I've seen. Many of you are familiar with the story. The main person in the story is Ebenezer Scrooge, and this elderly businessman who stubbornly refuses to acknowledge the holidays, specifically Christmas. Because Christmas is a time of giving and charity, spending time with family. And the last thing Ebenezer Scrooge wanted to do was to be giving and charitable because he was a miser. He didn't care about the needs around him, not his employees, not his neighbors. He didn't have family. And then one day, his former business partner, uh, Jacob Marlin, shows up as a ghost, warning Scrooge that he's going to be visited by uh, the spirits of co- uh, Christmas past, present, and future. And through these visits, he's shown how his hoarding and miserly ways and his indifference towards other people negatively impacts the lives around him. And as a result... He is transformed into this gentler, kinder, and a more generous man. And so many people love this story, and it could be retold throughout generations, is because we know inherently that there's something bad and wrong about being cold and callous towards other people, especially when you have the means and resources to make a difference in other people's life. It's wonderful to see somebody like Scrooge reformed, see the error of his ways change, and be more generous. He sees his wealth as a means to uplift the quality of life in other people. And he begins to find joy in that endeavor. And our passage today has the same core lesson, namely that cold and callous indifference towards the plight of those around us is wrong. It's sinful. And does not reflect the heart of a Christian nor does it reflect the heart of Christ. But unlike A Christmas Carol by Dickens, there's not a happy ending. The main character is not, doesn't reform. There's no rejoicing at the end. There's only judgment. That judgment is permanent and irreversible. So let us take heed of this warning passage. And we may not have the spirits of Christmas to warn us, but we have something far better. We have Moses and the prophets, and we have the very word of God. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Our verses today will be verse 19 through 31 and a quick outline. Simply three broad strokes here. Life, death, and the afterlife. Life, death, and the afterlife. Verses 19 through 21, you have life. Death comes rather abruptly, verses 22 and 23. Then you have the afterlife, which is the majority of this passage, verses 24 through 31. So let us read, starting in verse 19 here. 
There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his table. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so, they may warn, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Okay, well, I know uh, Kenny already mentioned that this was a parable, but there is um, argument here whether it's an actual historical event that happened or whether it was a parable. I take the same position that this is a parable, an illustration uh, by Jesus. I'll present my arguments as I work through the text. Now, uh, one of the first arguments that it says, hey, this might actually ha- this may actually have happened, is that it doesn't explicitly say that it's a parable. But if you look, the intro in verse 19, there was a rich man, it starts very similar to most parables. And this rich man, his character, it brings this negative association, this negative connotation, the same way as the previous parable of the dishonest manager at the beginning of this uh, chapter. So if it is a parable, then it's meant to be taught through this comparative hypothetical situation related to everyday life, much like the Good Samaritan. So let's get into the details of the text here. In verse 19, we'll see that the rich man's wealth is described in his fancy clothes, how well he eats. He's not given a name, unlike the poor man who's given a name, but he's left anonymous. And the reason why he's left anonymous is that keeps the story generic and focuses on the theme rather than a specific person. There's a bit of irony going on here in that the main person is not the named person Lazarus, but him, the rich man, who isn't named. So here, in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this description, clothed in purple, uh, let me tell you, I had to slog through a lot of historical stuff and imported material and just how this uh, uh, mucus glands from these seashells from the Mediterranean Sea were used to create this really uh, expensive dye. It was boring, all right? Let me just tell you this. Clothed in purple just means really, really expensive clothes. That's all you need to know, all right? If you like that sort of stuff, that's great. You can find your own study. I was just like, oh, my goodness, get on with this already. So I don't care about purple dye. Anyway, so 
Just know that. It's just really expensive clothes, really fancy clothes. So I love you guys, so I spare you all that stuff. All right? And here he says, fine linen was probably referring to his undergarments. So not only did he have expensive clothes, but he had expensive underwear too. And then Jesus moves from what he wore to how he ate. Namely, he ate sumptuously. So this doesn't mean cereal for breakfast and a bologna sandwich for lunch. No, we're talking about like Alaskan king crab one night, filet mignon the next, maybe followed with a, a Godiva chocolate cheesecake for dessert, perhaps another night salted caramel, or maybe lemon raspberry cream. All right, so I'm just reading off the Cheesecake Factory menu at this point. All right, so. <laughs> Shows you how highbrow I am. I read sumptuously. I think, oh, Cheesecake Factory, right? <laughs> this has got to be Cheesecake Factory. And here, this word feasting, feasting. You know, this word is normally uh, only preserved for weddings or major celebrations. So here, life was a party for this guy every night. He indulged his desire. He, le he led a life of comfort and splendor. His possessions he used to indulge everything this world had to offer. And here in verse 20, and at, his, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here, the best argument that this might actually be a historical event is that uh, the poor man was given a name, Lazarus. And no other parable that Jesus gives that he gives a name to any figures that he uses. Now, if we believe this is a parable, then why would he give uh, this person a name? Well, I think three reasons. There's three reasons why I think he gives this poor man a name. First, it helps facilitate dialogue that happens later in the passage. Second, it's actually a contraction of two Hebrew names, uh, Lazar and Eleazar, meaning God helps. So his name literally, mean, literally means God helps, which fits the theme of this passage of God helping the lowly and the suffering. Finally, Lazarus is the only person given this name because although he wasn't recognized by the people because nobody helped him, God recognizes him. So it's not recognition to one person, but a class of people that God cares for the downtrodden. God cares for the suffering. So those are the reasons why it's named, why he's named. So Lazarus is very poor, and he's in this complete state of destitution. And notice he was laid there. He was laid at the gate, at the rich man's gate. He was placed there by others, which we could probably infer that Lazarus was crippled. He couldn't get to the gate himself. Furthermore, the next part of the verse says the dogs came and licked his sores, which adds to this idea that Lazarus was immobile. He couldn't even get away from the dogs or shoo, the, shoo them away. And while he was lying there, he was just hoping for some food, any food, scraps off the table, garbage perhaps. And despite not experiencing any success, he didn't say, all right, well, this person's not going to give me anything. I'm going to just get up and go somewhere else, try my luck elsewhere. I don't think he could have done that. So there's, there's evidence here that we could uh, see that he just wasn't able to. And that's the sort of destitution he was in. So now this word gate is interesting. It's a, a Greek word pylon, which is usually used uh, for entrances of cities, temples, palaces. So this rich man is depicted in living in a mansion. So this imagery is a contrast between two economic extremes. 
And you have Lazarus who's poor, hungry, and homeless, without clothes because dogs were licking his sores, who was crippled, severely suffering, while this rich man ate sumptuously every day, lived in this mansion, clothed with fine linen, was able-bodied, and lived this carefree life. Now, it was popular theology in Jesus' day that when you have material wealth and you have material riches, that was a stamp of God's approval, that you were living a righteous life. And if you're in the bottom rung, economically speaking, well, you must be unrighteous. It's clearly your fault you're in this predicament. So if somebody is suffering like Lazarus, um, they would infer that, hey, maybe this is just God's judgment on you. Uh, consider Job and his friends. You remember the story of Job. Job, extremely wealthy, uh, not just materially, but family. He had a wife and several kids. And all of a sudden, that was taken away from him. And you recall his friends, when they started talking, they said, hey, you must have did something wrong because there's no way this would happen to a righteous person. So that was their argument. And Job swears by his innocence. I was like, hey, I know I didn't sin, so I don't understand why this is happening. And he swore his innocence. Think of John chapter 9, when the man was born blind, the disciples had asked Jesus, did this man sin or did his parents sin that this man was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither of them sinned. He was born blind so that God may be glorified. So there is this idea that um, being impoverished was a, a sign of God's judgment. So the, go the prosperity gospel is nothing new where God is somehow this slot machine and you just pull this, the right faith and prayer levers. He gives you what he wants or what you want. Um, that's nothing new. So this next part of the passage is to shock the audience. And it shocked the audience by showing that Lazarus actually ends up in heaven blowing up this theological idea. And not only does he end up in heaven, but he ends up at Abraham's side. And the next shock in the passage is the rich man is not only not taken up to heaven, but he ends up in Hades. So the scene drastically switches. So both uh, Lazarus and the rich man die, and death is the great equalizer. And at death comes this eschatological reversal. And read with me in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his table. Or at his side, excuse me. So in the New Testament, Hades is a, a synonym for hell. Uh, every time the word uh, Hades is used in the New Testament, it's referring hell with one exception. And that's in Acts 2, verses 27 and 31. And it's because it's quoting from the Old Testament. So when you read Hades in the Old Testament, it's referring to the grave. And it talks about how both the righteous and the unrighteous go to Hades. Because we all die. We all end up in the grave. But when we transition to the New Testament, it's actually talking about hell, the place of eternal torment and judgment. So here... Uh, not only is the rich man in hell, he's in torment. And he sees, Abra uh, he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side, and, and Lazarus was carried by angels. Again, this is an image here. Like, we don't literally get carried by angels at judgment. But this imagery was put here to express care and comfort to those who are suffering. Again, it's reflecting the heart of God. And now... Lazarus, being in complete destitution, lacks nothing. 
And the roles of the rich man and Lazarus have now reversed. Lazarus goes from being this lonely sufferer, this beggar at the rich man's gate, to now at the side of the Jewish patriarch himself. The rich man had everything, anything that this world had to offer, he had. Any dreams we ever had, oh man, not working, party every night, what, you know, he had it all. And now it means nothing. For riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death, Proverbs 11.4. Death reduces this rich man's status. Wealth no longer counts for anything. And in verse 24, and then he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So here, this rich man is suffering. He appeals to Abraham, please send Lazarus to help. Just, just a drop of water. Interesting, he doesn't say a bucket or a hose, but just a drop. That's how much pain he was in. Now, I believe, um, since this is imagery, why is Abraham mentioned uh, is because it's primarily meant for a Jewish audience. So back up a little. Back up to verse 14. Same chapter, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. What are these things that, uh, that Luke is talking about? Well, if you remember Fred Sanders' sermon a couple weeks ago on the dishonest manager... Uh, at the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1, he was saying the parable of the dishonest manager to his disciples. And in verse 14, the Pharisees overheard what Jesus was saying to his disciples, and they ridiculed him. Verse 14. And Jesus says, verse 15, and he said to them, you, who are, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of God. So that verse sets up this parable. So there they are trying to justify their wealth. And then Jesus now redirects his attention to the Pharisees that are ridiculing him and addressing them. So it sets the stage for this parable that we're in today. Another reason why Father Abraham is cited is that it points back to their Jewish heritage. It points back to the very great patriarch that started the covenant between God and Israel. So yes, there's this Jewish heritage that's rooted in this imagery. And this rich man made this small request asking Lazarus to, to put a drop of water in his parched tongue for some relief. It shows that he knew Lazarus. And if he knew Lazarus, he knew what Lazarus needed. And just like Lazarus had hoped for just scraps off the table and didn't receive it, now the rich man, hoping just for a drop of water, will not receive it. The difference now is that the rich man's state, his fate is sealed. There's no hope of reversing it. The request is denied. And here Abraham goes and explains why in verse 25. And he says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime receive good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. Interestingly here, Abraham calls him child. Uh, it's a term of affection. He's not harsh with him, which reminds us again the heart of God where uh, it says, the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, Ezekiel 33:11. And it also reminds us that not 
all children of Abraham, his physical descendants, will enter the kingdom of God. It is those with the faith of Abraham, regardless of their ethnicity, who will enter the kingdom of God. So Abraham explains this denial and said, you received your good things, Lazarus' bad things. Well, what's going on here? Is he talking about karma, reciprocity? No, the, the, this reversal of the role just shows that the rich man did not provide what Lazarus needed and now Lazarus is not going to provide what he needed. The rich man's extravagant wealth and lack of compassion revealed where his heart was at. It showed how he used earthly possessions. It showed how spiritual, in the state of spiritual poverty that he was in. There's no mercy in eternity for that. He's reaping what he has sown. In other words, if during our time on earth, we solely pursue life of comfort and luxury and ease while overlooking the needs of others and not caring for others, then, the, then earth will be the extent of our enjoyment and eternity will be our hell. But if we live in a way where God is truly the treasures of our heart, no matter what happens here, no matter how bad things get, no matter what circumstances you find yourself into, this is the worst it's ever going to get for us. And eternity will be our heaven. For the Christian life, this is the worst it's going to get. Whatever it is you're going through, this is the worst it's going to get. For the non-believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, this is the best it's ever going to get. So here in verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. See this gulf, this chasm, it's a symbol of how death is final. The emphasis here, hey, it's too late. You can't change your ways in here. This isn't purgatory. And this great chasm is unbridgeable, and no amount of human effort could bridge that gap. And once you're in eternity, it becomes uncrossable. Death is permanent and irreversible. And the rich man accepts this fate immediately and then asks for another request. Please then send Lazarus to my brothers to warn him. Here in verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father... To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, uh, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And here, it's probably the only redeeming quality of this rich man that he actually cares. The first time he cares for other people, and that's his brother. Uh, he doesn't want his brothers to suffer the same fate he has, which implies that they're probably living the same type of lifestyle. And here, Abraham denies that request and says his brothers should listen to Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures. And the rich man disagreed with them and said, no, if there was some sort of sign, some sort of special sign, like somebody coming back from the dead, surely my brothers would believe then and repent. Abraham repeats his assertion. Hey, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe a resurrection Verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what's the rich man's argument here? At its core is that, hey, the scriptures, it's not enough. People, specifically his brothers, need something more than the word of God to be convinced to repent of their sinful ways. 
And that something more is usually this miraculous sign, specifically resurrection here. And that's exactly what the world believes, that the scriptures is not enough. That the Bible itself is not enough for us to believe God. We need a sign and wonder. We need uh, some sort of resurrection. But see, you'll notice that this is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. And even after Christ's resurrection, people still didn't believe. So Jesus is prophesying his own future, his immediate future. And how he will save humanity and people will still come to doubt. Way back in Luke 9, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And he's been on this path, this mission to the cross to save humanity. To fulfill what Moses and the prophets have been proclaiming for centuries. And Jesus is now casting the Pharisees as this rich man who claimed to believe Moses and the prophets yet rejected him. And a sign of that rejection is a love for money. There's no evidence of saving faith in how you handle money. Now, I'm about to break a preaching rule here. You, typically, you don't show the outline, okay? But, you know, uh, they always say, hey, have an across state, have every point start with the same letter. It's just easier to listen, easier to follow, easier to remember. But for the life of me, I couldn't find, I just couldn't do it, okay? You could deduct that from my honorarium if you'd like because I, I just... So I'm just going to show it. I got a bad grade in preaching class anyway. So uh, life now and the present life. Two broad strokes. Life now and life later. Present life and the afterlife. So uh, I'll read these quickly and I'll go over them again. So basically what we do in this life, specifically how we handle our money, impacts eternity. Cold and callous indifference towards the needs of others, especially those around us, doesn't reflect the heart of a Christian. So the implications are to be generous and invest in God's kingdom. You have to count the costs. Does your fi- Christian faith cost you anything? Because you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. And then we have the afterlife. The f- we must believe in the sufficiency of God's word to save because the afterlife is real. Eternity is real. We must trust in God and we must evangelize because judgment is real and it's permanent. And there's eternal torment and it lasts forever and there's no relief. That's very real. So let's go through this again. So be generous. Now, to be clear, the parable is not against rich people in general. The rich man wasn't condemned because he was rich. He was condemned because of his callousness towards the plight of others especially those right in front of him. Later in Luke, Zacchaeus, Luke 19, Zacchaeus becomes this model of how to handle wealth. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So here, Zacchaeus shows Uh, through his resources, what saving faith looks like. Through his generosity and his giving. Now, let's be clear. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't buy your way into heaven. There's going to be a lot of generous people in hell. And there's going to be a lot of rich people in heaven. But the evidence is, in terms of Christian faith, and if you truly have a generous heart, it's a posture towards caring for others. 
So living a life of luxury while ignoring, ignoring object poverty at your doorstep is dangerous. And it shows that we're spiritually unhealthy. It's a reflection of where our hearts are at. And wealth itself is not evil. God created it. So therefore it is good. But this warning passage shows that wealth can be dangerous. It's got to be stewarded well. It's got to be used well. It's got to be used in godly ways. And we must be freed from the love of money. The love of just merely acquisition. And to be generous towards others. Trusting God will provide for our needs as well. Using our resources for God's kingdom. And this rich man was consumed and absorbed with his own enjoyment, his own leisure, his own celebration, and he failed to respond to the needs right in front of him. His callousness callousness made his earthly riches all that he's going to ever receive in life. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your money goes is where your heart goes, whether it's education or entertainment. Now, those things aren't bad in themselves, but any good thing could be bad things when they become ultimate things. The movement of your money is the movement of your heart. So are there reasons why we're withholding our giving, our tithing to the church? Is there a reason why we're tight-fisted with our money? This view of scarcity that, that, that we have. Because Proverbs 3, 9, 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you recall Fred Sanders' uh, sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, The Dishonest Manager and the Virtues of Shrewdness. I'm going to exercise some shrewdness now by stealing uh, a lot of his material. He used uh, Charles Wesley's template of gain all you can, save all you can, to give all you can. And remember, as Fred so uh, adequately Uh, put it, you can't just pick your favorite two. And the rich man is an example of that very thing. And I believe these two parables are linked. They're linked together. So, whether you're the dishonest manager and you have little, be shrewd with your resources. Whether you're rich man and have much, be shrewd with your resources. Don't think you're exempt because, hey, I don't have this kind of wealth like this rich man party every night and I have to work, live in a palace. I'm kind of exempt from generosity. No, you need to be scheming on how to bless other people. You may take some more creativity, but that's a call for all of us, for the regenerate believer. Be shrewd with your money. It's emphasizing that again here. Now, there are needs everywhere. That doesn't mean you have to give up your money every time you run into a homeless person. You have to exercise wisdom. And we could drive ourselves into a guilt-written lunacy trying to figure out and, and, and meet everybody's needs. Sometimes helping isn't helping. I grew up in East L.A. I started working at 7-Eleven in East L.A. as a teenager. And, man, I got stories for you. You know, most teenagers worried about the prom. I was like, dude, I'm not going to survive this shift, man. Gang members, beer runs, all kinds of stuff, man. Good grief. We should have lunch sometime. Uh, but one of the things as it relates to our passage today is I actually talked to a lot of homeless people. And I could tell you, at least anecdotally speaking, that sometimes helping isn't helping. Sometimes it's enabling. Paul even tells Timothy, hey, there are certain widows. Here are the widows that you need to help. And here are other widows that you don't help. And he gave a clear criteria for that. So you just don't give indiscriminately. 
And I love that our benevolence fund is overseed by godly, wise deacons. So when there's assistance uh, that, that brings the church to attention, they have to try to figure out, hey, is this a sowing, reaping principle, or is this really something that we need to step into? If you're a young guy driving a little fast, you got a speeding ticket, hey, that, that's a sowing, reaping principle. Sorry, you just got to slow down next time. In other cases where uh, people uh, get into situations, no fault in their own, that just need a little uplifting to get back on their feet, well, yes, absolutely we step into that. So use wisdom. So what are some principles, at least based on this passage, what can we start with? Well, I would start with proximity. Proximity. Notice that Lazarus would, was at the gate of the rich man, and the rich man ignored him completely every single day on his way to his parties. Or as he, if he was hosting a party, people ignored him on, the, on their way in. So start with proximity. He wasn't condemned that, hey, how come you didn't take care of this person halfway around the world? No, it's like you didn't even care for Lazarus who's right in front of you. I remember I was taking Theology One with Eric Tonis, and he would always say in class that, hey, God hasn't called you to fix all the world's problems. Just be faithful in your sphere of influence. I remember how freeing that was. It's like, oh, yeah. And besides, I, I can't fix all the world's problems. It just The weight just kind of came off. I should feel more of a sense of responsibility to my immediate family, my extended family, my church family, the neighbor on my block. I should feel more of a sense of responsibility. But also, we can't just stay there. Be faithful in your sphere of influence now and then slowly work your way outwards. I guarantee you, you're faithful now. God will give you more. and He will use you more. As you work your way outwards, I think this reflects the theme of Luke and having compassion for others. And here, Luke 14, speaking of a banquet, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and you will be blessed. Although you, they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And here, this imagery of hell, again, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Again, this imagery of those who think they're outside are actually on the outside looking in and they also see Abraham and the prophets. And again, in chapter 16, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Second, count the cost. Count the cost. Christianity bears a cost with it. Now, generosity doesn't mean vote for the government to come and confiscate from the rich man to give to Lazarus. That. That's not generosity, at least biblically speaking. Now, if we were at a restaurant and I was ordering for all of us and I knew somebody else was flipping the bill, well, hey, man, ribeyes all around. Let's get out some nice wine with that as well. But then if I knew I had to flip the bill, like, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Let's, rail, let's bring them ribeyes back, put the wine back in the cellar. We're having water and house salad. Hold the croutons. All right. <laughs> It's, it's different when you got to flip the bill. And some of you are like, man, you sound like Ebenezer Scrooge, Jr. But yes, the, the co- we bear the cost. We don't pawn that responsibility. 
to somebody else. And it's in line with Scripture. We bear the cost. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 1 John 3.17. And James says this. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James 2, 15 through 17. I remember when my wife and I, we were considering adoption. And we prayed for a good couple years together. It's, it's a weighty decision. It's a big decision. And one of the biggest deterrents, uh, probably maybe the biggest deterrents for me personally, was the financial cost of it. Hey, I got goals. Man, this is going to be put a big ding in my portfolio. Man, that was... That was hard to, to, to grapple with. And then everyone's like, hey, man, read Adopted Life by Russell Moore. It changed your life, you know. So I read it, and, you know, it was all right. I'm not bashing the book. If you found it helpful, awesome. Read it again, recommend it to other people. That's great. But it just didn't move the needle for me. I won't get into the reasons why now, but it just didn't move the needle for me. But what did was a book that had nothing to do with adoption. It was J.C. Ryle. This book, Holiness. And if you haven't read that book, you, you need to read it. You've got to put it on your to-read list. And it was his chapter on the cost. The cost specifically on Christianity in general. Nothing to do with adoption. But he says this. I grant freely that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A man has only to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday and be tolerably moral during the week. And he has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial, no self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven. Ooh. It goes on. But it does cost something to be a real Christian. According to the standard of the Bible, there are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him up easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. And as I was praying whether we should move forward with adoption, that was the passage that pierced my heart and says, you know what? You lack faith, Junior. You really worried about money? Why don't you step forward so I could reveal myself to you? I was like, all right. Let it go. And you know what? Yeah, we, we paid money. But through generous scholarships, Funded by the generosity of other people. We didn't bear that cost alone. The Litzows, Jason and Mella, helped us with fundraising. Spent their time organizing fundraising that, so we wouldn't bear that cost alone. And as a result, a child that didn't have a family now has a family. His life has changed and our life has changed. And maybe one day his eternal destination will change. That's 
think of what Fred was talking about, using the temporary economy to impact eternity. That's a clear example of it right there. So in short, be generous and invest in God's kingdom because we can't serve two masters. Uplift those around us. And finally, the sufficiency of God's word to save because eternity is real. The rich man asked Lazarus, hey, go back and warn my brothers, please. Said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. You know, that's, he's only speaking about the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. Here today, as new covenant Christians in the church era, we have the whole counsel of God. We have the person and work of Jesus finished. And the f- sufficiency of God's word means that we don't need any more special revelation. We don't need more inspired scripture. The word of God has given us the perfect standard for judging all other knowledge. And all other knowledge stands in subjugation under God's revealed word. Our ethics, our politics, our economics, sociology, psychology, philosophy, all must bend the knee to the supremacy of scripture. And here, Grudem, he defines the sufficiency sufficiency of scripture to mean that scripture contains uh, All the words God intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation. We need for trusting him perfectly. We we need for obeying him perfectly. And if this definition is correct, then we must search the word of God for the will of God. For the word of God is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. He's given us his statutes and precepts. The word of God reveals the character of God. The word of God brings clarity, conviction, is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It brings gratitude and worship for let the, the word of Christ indwell you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with thanksgiving to God. It's also the key for human flourishing. For the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that his fruit will bear in a season. His leaves do not wither. And all he does, he will prosper. And if the rich man had listened to Moses and the prophets, he would have understood God's heart. He would have understood that, that Moses and the prophets were pointing to Jesus. And here at the end of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So be confident within your Bibles. Preach your Bibles. Evangelize the lost. And those who need Christ because judgment is real. Eternity is real. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a prison, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God. These graphic images of eternal punishment should raise the question of, hey, is this literal or is this a symbol? Well, I would agree they're symbols, but I find no relief in that. Because if they are symbols, we must conclude that the reality is far worse than the symbol because there is nothing in human language that could accurately or completely depict hell that is fully felt. The 
functions of images and symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher and more intense realism that the symbol itself cannot encompass. And the point of figurative language is to express a reality that we can't grasp otherwise. And Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell, and there should offer us no comfort to anyone who thinks they're just symbols or representations. The doctrine of hell should elicit in us many things. I'm only going to mention two here. First, it should break our hearts for those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It should motivate us to share the gospel with boldness and compassion. And it should lead to profound gratitude from what God has saved us from. Now, this parable contrasts the rich man and Lazarus. Let's take a moment to contrast heaven and hell. At the end of the age, the apostle John sees this vision and he says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be to them their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, neither will there be crying, neither there will be pain, for the former things have passed away. And he continues. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. No more works to be added. No more propitiation to be added. God's wrath satisfied. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And unlike the rich man who is denied a request for a drop of water because hell is unquenchable regret for eternity. But those who are in Christ, we may not be clothed with purple and fine linen, but we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And here Jesus tells John to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, because he bore the cost. He paid it all. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, that I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexual immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So let these truths resonate in us and breed a sense of care and generosity to others, evangelizing the lost with compassion and confidence, with deep gratitude that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins.